In his book called Every Moment Holy, Douglas McKelvey writes a prayer entitled, A Liturgy for Watching a Storm. And I didn't realize this, we've got a nor'easter coming tomorrow, so this might be more relevant than we think. But listen to this prayer about watching a storm. It says, in every storm there's a sermon playing out in the parable across the canvas of sky, telling of the awesome power of one whose judgments are just, but whose mercies are thereby all the more scandalous and unexpected, and whose tender love for us is beyond comprehension. Praise be to God for his infinite mercies. Indeed, we praise you, O Lord, that having both might and right to crush whatever within us would assert itself against you, you instead crushed yourself, and by that act offered us life. Taking the brunt of such furious judgment into your own form and shielding us forever, from what our treason so rightly deserved. Thanks be to God for His unmerited grace. Now may these mighty winds, these lightning strikes, these crashing calls of thunder, these hard rains, by their fierce beauty, set us in awe, their witness rightly reminding us of that just verdict we will never have to face. An inverse testament to the affections of the one whose strong love has now become our shield against the coming storm. Glory to God for His sheltering love extended even to us. And what I love so much about McKelvey's prayer there is that it draws out not only the power of God in a storm, or if you're with us in Genesis, in a flood, but also the preserving grace and tender mercies of God on display in a storm. And as we come to this passage this morning, Genesis 8.20, all the way to the end of chapter 9, we see that Noah has just watched a storm, right? Not just a storm, the storm. Last week we saw the devastation of the worldwide flood. Humanity's wickedness and sin had so reached its peak that God did not preserve them in His might and right. Instead, He brought about judgment. Yet, in His tender mercy, he preserved one man and his family, Noah. And this prayer that we just read, I think if Noah were here today, he, would, he could heartily pray this prayer, especially as he stepped off the ark into this new creation. But even though the flood is over, Noah and his family, as we'll see today, and you and I, we still need the tender graces and mercies of God to preserve us. If left to ourselves, Noah and his family will show us, we would be doomed. So what do we see here? If we were to sum up this chapter, chapter 9, the end of chapter 8, in one sentence, I would say this. God is showing us how he's going to preserve his creation, moving from the flood, as he brings about the promise of redemption for you and me. So last week we saw decreation and judgment. Here, this week, we're seeing recreation and preservation. And listen, it's a very surprising passage. We didn't read all of it, more so for the sake of time, but it begins with an altar of worship. It continues with a covenant between God and mankind. And then it ends, and this is the part we didn't read, but we'll read it later. It ends with a scene of naked drunkenness and cursing. So if you're new to the Bible, welcome. Right? 
This is exciting stuff. But friends, Christ is all over this passage, just, just like he's all over every passage. And there, there are deep wells for us to drink from here as we consider the preserving grace of God on our lives. And so, just to tell you where we're going, we're going to look at this passage in three ways. First, we're going to see the preservation of Noah at the end of chapter 8, verses 20 through 22. Then we're going to see the preservation of creation and this covenant with Noah and his family in verses 1 through 17 of chapter 9. And then we're going to see God preserving the preservation of redemption in verses 18 through the end of the chapter. So let's, let's jump in. First, we see the preservation of Noah. Remember, he's just stepped off the ark, and we read in verse 20 of chapter 8, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and took some of every clean animal, and some of every clean bird, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. So what's the first thing Noah does after he steps off the ark with his family in this recreation after the flood? He worships God who graciously preserved him and his family. That's the very first thing he does. Now, Moses, writing this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's drawing parallels for us from earlier parts of Genesis, from original creation in chapters 1 and 2. So we saw this last week, the decreation, the flood, matches the language of the first six days of creation. And so this is a literary device Moses is using. Well, here we have... Creation 2.0, after the flood. And just as God placed Adam in the garden of Eden, he has now placed Noah in this post-flood new creation. And just as Adam's primary purpose was to worship and glorify God, Noah begins in this new creation, worshiping and glorifying God. There's a, a, a phrase we've cited over and over again at our church. It's from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Pastor Connor quoted it a few weeks ago. And it begins with this simple question. What is the chief end of man? What is, in other words, what's the goal and purpose of every person? And the answer is this, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That was true in Genesis 1. It was true in the garden. It was true of Adam and Eve. And even after the flood, that's still the primary purpose. It's still true today. So Noah worships. But notice, notice how he worships. It's quite different from Adam and Eve in the garden. If you think about it, they would worship God by their obedience to his commands before sin entered the world. They would live in perfect, right, or in, in, in union with him, glorifying him, walking with him. There was no need yet for a payment for sin because there was no sin that needed to be atoned or paid for. But Noah, what's the first thing he does? He worships God by building an offer and offering burnt offerings, sacrifices. And, and by the way, notice the amount of this. Some of every clean animal and bird. This was extravagant sacrificial worship. And what this is expressing to us from Noah's heart, and by way of extension his family, is, is two things. First, what Noah is expressing is gratitude for God's deliverance from judgment. He didn't presume that that was something he deserved. Noah was a righteous man, yes, the Bible tells us, but he was not a perfect or sinless man. And he knew the only reason he was spared from the flood from God's just judgment of sinners, 
was not because of his own righteousness, but because of the grace of God. In fact, that's the only reason anyone is spared from judgment, you and me included. So what does he do? He worships God. But in addition to this gratitude, these sacrifices are also meant to, this is the Bible word, atone for sin. What what does that mean? It means to satisfy the wrath of God and clear the guilty. Now the original readers of this would have had the, the whole of the first five books of the New Testament or the Old Testament in mind as they were reflecting on these things. They would have had this sacrificial system. Leviticus 1.4 tells us of this burnt offering. It says, He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. That's what Noah was doing here. The atoning sacrifice would satisfy the wrath of God and clear the guilty. Do you, do you see what this is telling us, right? We're in new creation. Great. We've got a clean slate. But the first thing we see is that the flood did not wipe away all sin. The end of our passage will put that on full display. But here we see it theologically. Noah and his family were like Adam. Therefore, they were sinners in need of redemption. So Noah as he's spared, as he's preserved through judgment, worships God from a a place of gratitude and as one who knows he needs forgiveness of sins. And this, this teaches us something very important here. We are tempted to point to all of our problems as things that are out there. They're, they're external problems. If only this problem would, would go away, everything would be fine. If only a flood would come and wipe away all of my bad circumstances, then I'll be okay, right? Wouldn't that be great? Noah had the self-awareness that we, we need. He's, he's saying, yes, God wiped away all of this wicked, wicked creation, but I know that I'm still here. I know that I'm still a sinner, and thanks be to God that he's preserved me, and God, please forgive my sin. That's what this act of worship is. Noah's not sitting there saying, oh man, I'm glad God finally took care of all of those wicked people out there. No, he's saying, God, thank you for sparing me from the just judgment I deserve. He doesn't blame all the problems on everything else. He knows, as the very next verse tells us, what God knows. The intentions of his heart are evil as well. He's still a sinner. As a father, I have this conversation with my, my many children when they're at odds with each other. Yes, you did something. They did something wrong against you. I understand that, right? I'll deal with that in a minute. But you have to realize, are you ready for this? You did something wrong too. And you can't blame your sin on their sin. You have to take responsibility. That's a a wonderful phrase parents love to repeat. You have to take responsibility for your actions. This is what Noah's doing here. He's taking responsibility for his heart as a sinner. And he's crying out to God, the one who's preserved him, from judgment. Our greatest problem is not the world around us, though there are many problems out there that need to be addressed. Our greatest problem is the sin within us. And the source of all of those problems come from 
the wickedness of our own hearts. You, me, Noah, and everyone else were just like Adam. Therefore, we need God to forgive us of our sins. That's what this act of worship shows us. Noah also shows us something I think is really relevant to our cultural moment, the time we're in right now in our world. He shows us how to rightly respond to a season of hardship, doesn't he? I find it interesting that Noah was on the boat for more than a year. And here we have been experiencing this global pandemic for more than a year. Moses was on lockdown with his family. No Zoom. We know what lockdown's like. It's, it's been a devastating, not just a pandemic, it's been a devastating season for our nation and our world. How have you responded to that storm in your life? How have you responded to the difficulties around you? I think for many of us, it's been a clarifying time. God's reminding us of the value of life and the reality of death. We've been confronted with this. And friends, that's what seasons of suffering do. They help refocus us on what matters most, the worship of God, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So Noah doesn't respond with a, certainly sorrowful, but he responds to this devastating flood by worshiping God. Friends, in all our, our longing for relief, in all our weariness, in all our trials, whatever trial you're facing in your life, let's not forget our primary call is to worship and glorify God, to praise Him for preserving sinners like us. Alan Ross says of Noah here, the true worshiper who by God's grace escaped the catastrophe, thus confessed his submission to and dependence upon God. May that be true of us as well. Or think of Job, a righteous man who lost everything. And after that storm, how does he respond? He says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Then as we read on, we see that God accepts this sacrifice from Noah. Verse 21, and when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I've done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And we're going to come back to that offering that the Lord accepts later. But, but notice that God accepts this not on the basis of Noah's righteousness himself, but on the basis of the sacrifice he offers. And then he gives this promise never to flood the earth again. That leads us to number two. So number one, we see the preservation of Noah and his response to worship. Number two, we see the preservation of creation. And those last two verses of chapter eight, if you're looking at your Bible, are really a summary of the covenant that's about to be laid out in verses one through 17 of chapter 9. Now, what is a covenant? There's so many great definitions. I chose this most, the simplest one for us this morning. So we're talking about a biblical covenant. Bruce Waltke says, a covenant is a solemn commitment of oneself to undertake an obligation. God is solemnly committing himself to his creation here and giving himself obligations in this case. You might think of a contract where two parties are agreeing to, to a certain defined uh, obligations. That metaphor is lacking, though, because um, usually when we sign contracts, we're not looking like to hang out with people, 
right? There's not like a relational connection. You want the mortgage loan, they want to make sure you can pay it, so you sign and move on. You're not calling the bank like, hey, do you want to go bowling later, right? You just, it, it's transactional. But God is establishing relationship here. Really, marriage is, is, a, is a better picture of a covenant here. Now, this isn't the first covenant in the Bible, Though the first time this word covenant is used is in relation to Noah back in chapter 6, verse 18. But God has already established a covenant with creation, with Adam. And and therefore, this isn't actually a brand new covenant. This is a reestablishing of the covenant. If you look down at verse 9, you might say, wait a second. It says he's establishing the covenant, Kevin. Well, yes, but that language actually is used in the Bible to talk about reaffirming an already existing covenant. So one example would be the difference between tearing down a house, leaving the foundation, building from the ground up, versus keeping the house, renovating, and doing an addition. Right? That's what God is, is doing here. He is reestablishing the original covenant with creation, but he's, he's putting in some additional provisions. Okay? Now, as we talk about a covenant, there's a, there's a few things that we have to wrap our minds around. A, a covenant involves the parties, the people involved, the, the terms of the covenant, promises, and then a sign. Okay, so those, those four things. So as we walk through this, let's think of those things. Who are the parties involved in this covenant? Well, God is the one making the covenant. He's the one saying, I will establish this with you. He's giving the terms. He's giving the promises. In fact, you could call this an unconditional, unilateral covenant. God is not saying, you do this, I do this, and if you you don't, the covenant's broken. He's just saying, listen, here's how it's going to be. This is why you see no response from Noah and his family. This this would be different than what we'll see with Abraham, what you'll see later with Moses and Israel. And we're told in Genesis 6.18 that the other party of this covenant is Noah and his family. But here in chapter 9, if you look at verse 9, we'll see that it's expanded to include all of creation. Verse 9 says, Behold, I established my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. In other words, we can, we can say this is God's common grace covenant for all of mankind, for all of creation. That's the parties, God and creation. Now, what are the terms of the covenant? And here's where we really see these parallels to Genesis chapter 1 and 2. First, we see this term of producing life. Noah's told three times to be fruitful and multiply. Does that sound familiar, Genesis 1? And fill the earth. The same command and blessing was given to Adam. They were to take this image of God and just cover the earth so that God would be glorified throughout his creation. So they're to produce life. We see also the second term of this covenant is the protection of life. This includes ruling over animals. Look at this. This is interesting. Chapter 9, verse 2. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth. And upon every bird of the heavens, and upon everything that creeps on the ground, and all the fish of the sea, into your hand they are delivered. So the parallel back in Genesis 1, we're told that man will rule over 
fish and the birds and the animals, but now God adds a provision. He's instilling fear in the animals as a way of protecting mankind, which makes sense given what he says next. We're told that just as plants were given for food in Genesis 1, sorry for this, vegetarians, not sorry. We're told here that animals are now given for food. Put away the veggie burger, right? Get out the steak patty. Chapter or verse 3, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. As I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life. That is its blood. Okay, now, why this, uh, why this pro- prohibition against consuming blood? Well, there's a lot of debate here. You can do a lot of reading on this passage. At its basic level, it's about consuming animals ethically. And this might sound strange, but it's, it's also a prohibition against just eating live animals. Right? If you go like full walking dead, zombie, you can't, don't do that. But also, what's, what's more so is we're getting a hint at the importance of blood here for the worship of God's people. Jesus, God tells us the life is in the blood. Later we'll see that this is reserved for worshiping God, for paying for sins. And then we see this other term. So we have the producing of life, the protecting of life, and then we have the preserving of human life. We move on in verse 5 and 6. And for your lifeblood, is God talking, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Verse 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. See what God's saying here. While while animal blood can be shed, animals can be consumed for proper use, but the blood of mankind cannot be taken by an act of murder. Why? Because... God restates Genesis 1.27. God made man in his own image. See, friends, this is a prohibition against murder. But it's more. Here in verse 6, God is giving this principle of retributive justice to society. This is where we see the glimpses of this establishment of capital punishment because God is assaulted when a human being murders another. The image of God is destroyed. Now this is not, and there's so much to say here, we can't say everything. This is not an encouragement of vigilante justice. Instead, what what mankind is learning is that law is necessary for stable living in a fallen world. Wickedness can't go unnoticed and unchecked like it did before the flood. God is establishing these things as a way of preservation. And we see this this principle unfold with the Apostle Paul as he applies it in Romans 13 as we think of the government that God has given for preservation. This doesn't mean that governments don't abuse things. This doesn't mean that justice systems don't have problems. But, But at its basic core level, God has established it. Listen to what Paul says. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. 
But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. God is establishing these things for the preservation of human life. So those are, those are the terms of the covenant. Now after the terms of the covenant, this producing, protecting, and preserving life, we see this promise. God places an obligation of, on himself. We saw it in verse 21 of chapter 8. I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of his heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. We see it again in verse 11 of chapter 9. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Listen, there will be floods. There will be natural disasters. And friends, God will still judge through those things, though we cannot presume to know the mind of God behind natural disasters. But what God is saying here is there will not be complete destruction of every living creature while the earth remains. I will preserve creation. And then the second related promise to this is that God will preserve the cycle of life. He said at the end of chapter 8, while earth remains, seed time, harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. I'll keep it going for you. He says, here's a sign I'm going to give you so, so that you will know and I will remember this covenant. It'll be a bow in the clouds, verse 13. Now, we immediately think rainbow, which that's what it's referring here. But what's interesting is there's no word for rainbow in the original language. The, the, the word that's used here refers to an archer's bow. You see, the, the image is this. God's saying, when you see a rainbow, I want you to envision me putting down my weapons of just judgment against you in peace treaty. That's what that sign is meant to show us. Friends, don't miss this. That's a lot to just take in about that covenant. But God is saying, your hearts are still evil, but I will patiently withhold my just judgment. The people the terms, the promises, all of this shows us God's commitment to the preservation of human life in a fallen world. We get, we're getting a clear picture of the patient, loving heart of God. And what's so interesting is this is right after the brutal flood of judgment. And oftentimes, when there's a disaster or a season of great suffering or, or tra tragedy, maybe you've noticed this on a public scale, but those who oppose God bring out accusations against him. And I don't mean the humble, psalm-like, wrestling with God in faith. I'm talking about the prideful assertion kinds of questions. If there is a God, why would he let something like this happen? Certainly, because of this tsunami, because of this earthquake, because of this flood, because of this pandemic, certainly he's not compassionate. And this kind of questioning shows that we just don't understand the reality of our sin and the character of God on display in this text. It's the wrong why question to ask. We should be asking a why question, but the proper question to ask in humility is, God, we are sinners. 
The int- you can look at what your thought process over the last 24 hours, and you know, if you are honest, you can point to the reality that there is evil intention in your heart. None of us deny that. God, we're sinners. We've scorned you and your creation. You're a holy and righteous and just God. We deserve judgment. Here's the why question. God, why would you allow us to live and move and breathe and experience your grace and joy and life? Why would you not judge us right now where we stand? That's the why question we should be asking. And what I, what I so love about the Bible is it doesn't give us every answer, but it answers that question for us. The Apostle Peter writing in chapter 2, or, or 1 Peter 2, chapter 3 says this. He's talking about the flood. He says, They deliberately overlooked the fact that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water, and through the water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that, has, that then existed was deluged with water and perished. That's the flood. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exists are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction. Now here's the why. Why would God preserve us? But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you. Why? Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So if you're here and you do not believe the gospel, know this, another judgment is coming. I understand. It's like, man, why the hellfire and brimstone? Listen, it's in the Bible. Another judgment is coming. And the only reason, the primary reason the earth is kept as it is today is because of God's patient, preserving grace and mercy toward you. The existence of your life is a gift of God's grace. Do not wait until it's too late. Because when that flood of judgment comes, there will be no ark to get into. If you do not take refuge in Christ now, you will not be ready for that day. Jesus said this in, John, in uh, Luke 17. He says, just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man when he returns to judge. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. He's saying they were not ready. Take refuge in Christ To my Christian brothers and sisters, this this covenant shows us that we too, like our God, should be about the preservation of life, both physical and spiritual life, present and ultimately eternal life. This is why we're committing an entire sermon series in a couple weeks on the topic of justice. Because God is pro-life, that's not a political term, God is pro-life from the womb to the tomb. And we should be about the preservation of life. Because the destruction of life is an affront to God's image. But there's also this missional application for us too, right? Life is short. It will end. God is patient. But judgment is coming. And friends, we have the answer. 
And many of our neighbors and our coworkers and our family members are not ready for the future judgment. They don't know. And I cannot presume to know all of the reasons why Christ has waited to return. No one can. But I know this one. One reason he has waited, Peter tells me, is so that the church can display and declare the gospel so that as many people would be saved from God's just judgment. That is the mission he has given to you and me. Because he has given us redemption in Christ. And that leads us to our third and final point, the preservation of redemption. So we've seen the preservation of Noah, the preservation of creation as we await the final judgment, and the preservation of redemption. This is where we get to the weird stuff, okay? Verse 18, the sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. So far, so good. Being fruitful, multiplying, cultivating the earth. Oh wait, verse 21. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered, naked, in his tent. Right? Noah's family begins to do what God has called them to do, but then he sins grievously. You, won't, this, you will not find this in any children's Bible. Right? If you do, don't, don't buy it. And it really is, I know I, I, I joke there, but it's a sad picture of a righteous man giving into the temptation of sin. And the sin here is not the consumption of alcohol. The sin here is drunkenness. It's the lack of self-control and overindulgence. So much so, friends, he passes out. He is blackout drunk. And it's a sad picture. Matthew Henry, looking at what Noah was, says, Noah, who once had kept sober and drunken company, is now drunk in sober company. And friends, this is a reminder to all of us, even those who are walking in holiness more than others, even those who who may be considered righteous, sin and temptation are constantly after us. Remember Genesis 4, they're crouching at the door. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he or she fall. But notice also this parallel with Genesis 3. Adam and Eve placed in the garden. They sin by taking the fruit. Noah, he's in his vineyard in this new recreation. And he sins by overindulging on the fruit of the vine. Adam and Eve felt shame in their nakedness. Noah is shamed in his nakedness. Sin is continuing on. And then we read in verse 22. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. This one verse, there have been books written about this verse. Multiple books. This is a, it's a debated passage. Some believe that Ham committed some sort of sexual sin against his father. I don't think that's the case. Uh, when, when Moses speaks of, of homosexual practice elsewhere, in places like Leviticus 6, he uses very different clear language. I think it's reading too much into the text to say that. So what did he do? He dishonored and shamed his father. He he looked upon, here's what he did. He looked upon his father in this sinful state. Instead of being brokenhearted for him, 
he went and told his brothers as if Noah was some sort of spectacle. You can almost hear him saying, hey, hey guys, remember our dad, righteous and blameless Noah? Guess what? He's blackout drunk and naked lying in his tent. He mocked his father. He shamed him. He made a spectacle of him and went and gossiped to his brothers about it. Now, when you consider Noah's response, which we will in a minute, he curses Ham's son, you might think, man, isn't this, just, isn't this an overreaction? But that's because, this is obvious, but discretion and family loyalty are really not characteristics of our Western culture, sadly. So we say, what's... That's bad, but is it really that big of a deal? Yes, absolutely it is to Noah and his family and to God. The fifth commandment, which is the first commandment dealing with interpersonal relationships. Exodus 20, 12, honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. What Ham should have done was what Shem and Japheth did. Look at verse 23. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it on both of their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. So they refused to join in the gossip and dishonoring of their father. They they refused to even look upon him. They're embodying the truth of Proverbs 17.9 here. Whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. They didn't want to shame their father. They wanted to love him well, even though they knew he was a sinner. So they cover him up. Now, just some quick hit applications here. Kids, I know this is weird, but just listen to me for a moment. Your parents are sinners. Just like you. Just like Noah. But God's called you to honor mom and dad. Like Shem and Japheth do here. Not dishonor them like Ham. And when you honor them, you are honoring God. And when you dishonor them, you are dishonoring God. Now parents, why in the world did Shem and Japheth turn out to love and honor their father and God, while Ham turned out to dishonor them? I think there's a helpful application for us here. We have no idea, one, related to this story, but we can learn that we can and we must, parents, train up our children in the gospel. We must preach the gospel to them, love them, catechize them, point them to Christ, labor in prayer for their souls. But in the end, however they turn out is God's prerogative. We must entrust them to the sovereignty of God. Church, there's a lesson for us here too. We should never make a spectacle of the sins of others. You hear that someone has fallen in sin. We're not to gossip. We're not to hold bitterness in our hearts or think they got what they deserved. Instead, it should break our hearts and we should move towards our brothers and sisters who are caught in sin in love and grace. Do you remember our vision series? Pastor Clint preached two weeks ago, 1 Peter 4, 8. Above all, Keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Now, what in the world does this have to do with redemption? Verse 24, Noah awoke from his wine, and he knew that his youngest son had done to him. He said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant 
of servants shall be like his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years and he died. So we see another parallel here. Just as God cursed the serpent in Genesis 3, Noah curses Ham's son, his seed. And here's, here's where this ties in with earlier parts of Genesis. Canaan's line continues the seed of the serpent from Genesis 3 that's in opposition to God. Noah then blesses the Lord of Shem, showing that is, that is the seed of promise. And through Shem continues the seed of promise. The Shemites grow into the nation of God's people. This is where we get the word Semite. And do you remember Genesis chapter 3, verse 15? God says, I'll put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, and between your offspring, we can read Ham here in light of this, and her offspring, Shem, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So God is showing us that this opposition is continuing, the, the seed of the serpent is continuing, but the seed of promise is also continuing. Now what about Japheth? Now we see in the next chapter that his descendants grow and they spread out to the coastlands. If we fast forward to the New Testament, we see that the Greeks and Romans are descendants from Japheth. Friends, this is a prophecy of what we see in the New Testament. The nations will grow, but in Christ, all nations will be invited back. Ephesians 3.6 says the mystery is that the Gentiles, that means the nations, you read Japheth here, our fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise of Christ through the gospel. Here's what God is saying. I am preserving my creation and I am preserving my promise of redemption to bring about new life and nothing can thwart it. And I'm doing this so that many, not just one nation, but many from all nations will not perish but will live. Friends, all of this is fulfilled for us in Jesus. The corruption that began in the Garden of Eden continues in the vineyard of Noah and it spreads again throughout God's people, Israel, in the wilderness and all of us are touched by that corruption. But redemption is coming. See friends, years after this moment in another garden outside of Jerusalem, Gethsemane, the Shemite, the God-man, Jesus Christ, did what Adam and Noah, and David, and Israel, and none of us could ever do. After a full life of perfect obedience to God, he willingly offered himself up to the will of the Father as a sacrifice for us. A sacrifice of atonement. And the next day he was nailed to the cross. He received the outpouring of our judgment upon himself so that we could receive the outpouring of his love and grace. He rose from the dead as a pleasing and acceptable sacrifice to God. He was the offering so that we who believe may be redeemed and that we may offer our entire selves on the altar of worship. And that we might invite all of creation, as God preserves it, to believe as we await his return, trusting that he will preserve his people all the way through every storm into eternity.
God is preserving us by his grace. He's preserved his promise of the gospel. And if he has done that, can he not preserve us through every storm? I love how that Douglas McKelvey prayer that we read at the beginning ends. It ends this way, and we'll close with this. It says, O Christ, who is our peace, cradle us now, even as you will cradle us at that final reckoning, calming every fear by your nearness as we watch with wondering eyes this storm-told story of great judgment and even greater mercy. Glory to God for his sheltering love and preserving grace. Let's pray together, church.